Welcome to the preaching ministry of Tri-City Baptist Church in Chandler, Arizona. Our desire is that God would be magnified through the preaching of His Word, and that Christians would be challenged, strengthened, and edified in their personal walk with Christ. Tremendous message in that song, really a very convicting song if we think about the words and make personal application, but a great goal to shoot for, that our homes would be those that that would honor the Lord, where Christ is Lord and Master. As we come to this section of Ephesians, we find that being the emphasis. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me this morning to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, if you are using the Bibles there in the chairs, this passage is on page 816. As we continue our study of this book, which really is a a view of the church through spiritual eyes, that so much of what we think of the church today, we think of a building, but that is not the biblical sense, it's really the body. And particularly, as we will see in our passage this morning, the bride of Christ. Read of a little girl who had just heard the story of Snow White for the very first time. And she was excited, she was full of enthusiasm, and and she could hardly contain herself, and so she wanted to tell her mom this fairy tale. And she began retelling the story with great excitement. She told about how Prince Charming had come, he arrived on this beautiful white horse, and he kissed Snow White back to life. And then with excitement, she said to her mom, and do you know what happened next? And her mom said, yes. They lived happily ever after. And she said, no. With a frown on her face, she said, no, they, they got married. <laughs> Unfortunately, in her childlike innocence, that little girl expressed the sad fact that getting married and living happily ever after are not necessarily synonymous. What I want us to consider from this passage this morning is a marriage made in heaven. The longest statement in the New Testament on the relationship of husbands and wives is found here in Ephesians chapter 5. And it comes at the beginning of a section that Martin Luther referred to as household codes. The expansion on the final exhortation of of how believers are to live in the light and, and really apply the teaching of the first three chapters of Ephesians, which provide the doctrinal foundation. And I I stress that because it's easy for us to jump to the passages on, okay, what do I need to do, the specifics, how to, you know, how to fix our marriage, how to fix my spouse, how to how to get my children to obey and miss the foundation which gives us the spirit. And it's really important that we understand the spirit of what we are called to do. That as believers, we're called to walk in a manner that is worthy of our calling by God in Jesus Christ. And so what we have seen in chapters 4 and 5 up to this point is we're to walk in unity. We're to walk in holiness. We're to walk in love and in light and in wisdom. And now we see that harmony that ought to be in the home. The unity within our church really will be directly impacted by the unity in our marriages. That if there are problems in the marriages within a church, it's going to affect the life of the body as a whole. The strength of of your marriage and my marriage will impact our relationship with the bride of Christ. That is the church. Say, well, how can you say that? Well, because when you consider the development of this letter, 
and how it has been laid out that the instruction to husbands and wives is a relationship that's grounded on the first three chapters. It's describing what God is doing in Christ in the church. And so rather than just jumping to these chapters and missing that doctrinal foundation, we started at the beginning, and I've continued to try to bring that forward so we understand where we are, because our theology is vital. What you believe about God will determine the quality of your marriage. We are all theologians. The question is, are we good theologians or bad theologians? But we all have ideas about God. In fact, even unsaved people have lots of ideas about God. They say, I like to think of God as, and what they give you next is their theology. The question is, is it based in the Bible? So in Ephesians 5.15, we're told to walk in wisdom. And the only way to truly walk in wisdom and what's laid out after that is to be controlled by the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit's control of a person will be evidenced in several things. It will be evidenced in their speech. We saw that in verse 19. The, the praise that we sang about, that in our homes there ought to be that spirit of praise. It'll be seen in the spirit of thanksgiving, verse 20, and then in submission, that's verse 21. Submitting to one another in the fear of God. Verse 21 sets the tone for this entire section. And what follows specifically and plays out really in three realms, the husband-wife relationship, the parent-children relationship in the first part of chapter 6, and then masters and servants, or as we would make application today, employers and employees in in the other opening verses of the, the sixth chapter. But the truth is, this is a difficult section. It's difficult to hear. It's difficult to preach. It's really difficult to study but it's not really difficult to understand. Part of the difficulty is it's so straightforward, and we would like it to be a little more nuanced. (laughs) We'd like to cloud it up a little bit. The difficulty really is that it goes against the grain, not only of our culture, but ultimately of our fallen hearts. We don't like to hear the word submission in any context. We don't, we don't want to hear it in the workplace. We don't want to hear it in the government. You don't want to hear it from your boss. We, because we all want to be the God of our life, the captain of our destiny. We demand our rights and we deflect our responsibilities. And then we like to redefine the terms to meet our agenda. And I say that in introduction to encourage all of us that let's make sure that we come to God's word in humility. Because the first place of submission is going to be, am I willing to obey God? Otherwise, we're going to have problems in every other area. So as we read the text, if you are a believer, approach it with a spirit-controlled humility, a submission to the infallible, inerrant sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. If you have your Bibles open, follow with me as I begin reading in verse 21. We'll start in verse 21 to give us the context that lays the foundation for the rest of this chapter. Ephesians 5.21, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be subject to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives. Just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, 
not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you be in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respect her husband. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Fathers, we consider your word this morning. We pray that you would open our eyes, that we would behold wondrous things from your word, and that you would open our hearts, that we would receive your word, the will of the Spirit, in a Spirit-controlled humility. Lord, that we would make personal application, that the unity of our church would reflect our relationship with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We ask this in his name. Amen. What I'd like us to see from this passage this morning is that by understanding God's intention for marriage, that it's to represent Christ's relationship with his church, as believers, we should then live in a way that displays our desire to bring him glory. That's what we find in this passage. This passage is, is ultimately about Christ and his bride, the church. And then the instruction concerning marriage are presented in that context. And, and what I would desire this morning, we could actually do an entire series from this passage. And there's so much here, we could, we could do a series on marriage. That's not my intent. Though there's lots of application, we could make lots of specific applications, but my desire is that we understand the spirit of it rather than simply jump to the specifics. The first thing I want us to see from this passage, though, is that God established the pattern for marriage in the order of creation. Understanding that foundation is vital. Do you realize the Bible begins and ends with a wedding? We find it in the opening chapters of Genesis. We have the Lord God uniting Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden as the culmination of that creation week that he creates humans that last day and then brings the woman to the man. And then in the concluding chapters of Revelation, we read of the marriage of the Lamb. And so this passage here then explains that the church is the bride of Christ who is the Lamb. And understanding the context, that marriage was God's idea from the beginning. It's, it's not some kind of a, a cultural idea or sociological invention. It was God's idea. In fact, I would invite you to turn back to Genesis 2 with me just very briefly. I'm not going to take time to read the, all of these verses, but to draw your attention to chapter 2. Beginning in verse 18, we find that, that the creation of humans was a special creation. Back in chapter 1, God says, let us make man in our own image, and then male and female created he them. In chapter 2, verse 18, it says, the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. And so we see this, that, that contrary to evolutionary thinking, humans find their identity upward in God, 
not downward in animals. We are created in the image of God. And so understanding that is vital to understanding marriage. And there are several things that we we have to recognize. They, They used to be just assumed, but in our culture, we have to make sure that they're clear that number one, marriage was to be heterosexual. It was between a man and a woman. God made a helper comparable, comparable to him. That men and women are different by God's design. And so in chapter 2, verse 22, it says that the Lord God took a rib from the man, and it says, and he made a woman and brought her to the man. And then in verse 23 of Genesis 2, Adam, the man, recognized her as bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Marriage is to be heterosexual. God ordained it that way. The second thing is to be monogamous. There's one man and one woman that God made one suitable helper for Adam. Verse 24 says, A man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. And the words are singular there. And that's not insignificant. Because if you read the passage, you realize that, that the Lord had instructed the man that he was to, re, to fill the earth and subdue it. Well, couldn't he have done that better if he had had multiple wives? get more offspring, you can do the, bring the earth, you know, do the tilling of the ground and subdue it much quicker. He didn't. And realize there's a reason for that. And, and while there are, you know, our culture keeps shifting and this is getting open to questions as well. And, you know, I know the Mormon church's official position is against polygamy now. That hasn't always been the case. But God's design was one man and one woman. I told my staff this morning, I'd heard that years ago, uh, Mark Twain was debating with a Mormon, and the Mormon said to him, he said, show me one verse in the Bible that, that is against polygamy. And Twain said, there's nothing easier. No man can serve two masters. <laughs> now, that is not the context, and that's not where we're going this morning. <laughs> but understand that God's design was that marriage would be monogamous. And that we recognize this aspect. The third thing, though, is that it's to be permanent. Now, we realize that sin causes problems and marriages break up, but God's plan was one man and one woman for one lifetime. And yes, there are problems, and we we experience that and we deal with that in a culture because of sin, but God's desire was to show that unity that we have with Jesus Christ. The fourth thing we see is to be intimate. They shall be one flesh. And this is more than just physical intimacy, though that is certainly part of it. But it's a unity of of emotion, of spiritual aspects that we're coming together, we're taking two and becoming one. Do you realize the first mention of sexuality in the Bible is in Genesis 1.27? Now, up to that point in creation, it's been assumed. Obviously, if the animals are to reproduce, there are female and male animals but it's not stressed until it's the creation of humans. And it's human sexuality that is brought forward. And that's the point also, that's brought out also in Genesis chapter 5, verse 2, that human sexuality is superior to animal sexuality. And physical intimacy is designed by God and is to be part of that marital relationship to bring a couple together in oneness. It's also supposed to be the primary relationship. It's the first relationship. So it says, for this cause a man shall leave father and mother. But isn't it interesting, 
that the Lord says that before there were fathers and mothers. It's with the creation of Adam and Eve. And that marriage relationship was the primary relationship, that it takes superiority over the others. And so the, the next one would be priority. Before the parents leave father and mother and cleave, be united with wife, there comes a point where children leave. And our goal as parents ought to be to raise them to be independently dependent on God but they are going to leave our homes and we have to let them go. And that's one of the things we often point out at a, at a wedding ceremony, that you are establishing a new family. And so understanding it back in chapter 5 of Ephesians, verse 31 said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is God's plan. It's the order of creation. So when we understand marriage and God's instructions in chapter 5 of Ephesians, realize it's grounded back in Genesis and what we saw in Genesis 2 is before sin. And the reason for this is the second point I want us to consider is that God intended for the picture of marriage to display Christ and his church. If you want to go back to Ephesians 5 now, it says in verse 32, this is a great mystery. I speak concerning Christ in the church. What is the mystery? What's a great mystery? That the coming together of man and woman in forming that one flesh marriage is a picture of Christ in his church. That when God designed marriage back at creation, he had our relationship with Jesus Christ in mind. Now the Old Testament, that you don't see that. And so a biblical mystery is a, something that was previously hidden but is now revealed. And so this one flesh, the picture is actually, the picture in marriage is actually a picture of the reunion. What was originally one became two becomes one. Because God took a rib from Adam, made woman, and then brought her to him and they become one. And that really is the picture. So it's symbolized, yes, by the sexual one flesh union, but it's much more than the physical act. It's the blending of two lives and sharing those lives that they become one shared life. And recognizing this is the picture that as believers, we are in Christ. And if you remember back in chapter 4, verse 4, it said there is one body, one spirit, that reunion. Galatians 3.28 says, you are all one in Christ Jesus. So the picture is that one flesh. The, the marriage is a mystery because the deepest meaning was concealed until the Holy Spirit reveals it through Paul that this is a picture of Christ and his church. And that's why God designed marriage. And I do believe that's part of why Satan attacks marriages today. It's his way of burning in effigy that picture that God created. That God created marriage as an advertisement for our relationship between Christ and the church. And so this is why, first of all, marriage is a covenant relationship of companionship. We see that, that it's not a contract. 
It's not some cultural idea. It's not simply a piece of paper. No, it is a commitment in the presence of God. In fact, in every wedding I've done, I begin by saying we are gathered together in the sight of God and these witnesses. That God is present. Because it's a sacred union. There's a sacred aspect of it. In fact, in Malachi chapter 2, verse 14, the the context is these are people who are complaining that God was not accepting their offerings. They're saying we're bringing our offerings and God's not accepting them and basically he's failing to fulfill his part of the agreement. And so God replies to their accusation. And when you read the book of Malachi, you find them accusing God. God makes a statement. They say, how have we done that? If I were to title Malachi, I would say, how to be totally insensitive. Because that's really, they say, you know, I have loved you. And they say, well, how have you loved us? And there's a lack of sensitivity. But it comes to this aspect, and they say, you're not accepting our offerings. And he says, it's because you have failed in your part. He says, because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth, with whom you have dealt treacherously, yet she is your companion and your wife by come." covenant. It's a covenant of companionship. And recognizing that, that in in the Bible, if a covenant was kept, there were blessings. And if it was broken, there were judgments. And one of the blessings of the covenant of marriage is that security and freedom that is experienced when a couple is committed to one another and both striving to please God solely in their relationship. And as the bride of Christ, we are accepted in the beloved. So when we understand the covenant of companionship and when we remember the first chapter of Ephesians, we are accepted in Jesus Christ, that we are secure as his bride. And what a blessing that is because he knows everything about us. He knows everything about our past. He still loves us. He even knows the mistakes we're going to make in the future. And he still loves us. We are accepted in the beloved. And he's promised he will never leave us or forsake us. That's the comfort. That's the picture. That would be the desire in marriage. And recognizing that it's a covenant of companionship. The second thing, though, is that marriage should reflect your relationship with Christ. In verse 25, it says, Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. That marriage was created by God as an advertisement of Christ's relationship with his bride. And because of that then, our identity is in Christ. Recognizing that often, and I say this because one of the challenges in our culture is there's sometimes this pressure on those who are single that, well, something must not be right about you because you're not married. No, that, that's wrong. Identity is in Christ. And and at one point of this passage, you know, while instructing couples, it's to understand that there's security for all Christians in the love that Christ has for us. That mature manhood and womanhood are not dependent on being married. Jesus was never married. And he was fully human. And marriage is not the final destiny of any human. In fact, Jesus said that in heaven we will, we will be like the angels in that we won't be giving in marriage. There won't be marriage or giving in marriage. So that's not the final destiny. And understand the Bible celebrates singleness as a gift 
from God for the sake of service. This is 1 Corinthians 7, 7. That God is sovereign over who gets married and you can trust him. Because our identity, your identity, must be found in Christ. And some people get married thinking, this person will meet all my needs. And they are sorely disappointed. Because no human will meet all your needs. Only Jesus Christ can meet all your needs. And both married people and single people struggle because they seek to have their needs met by other people rather than by Christ. And we have to understand that. And I, and I would caution, if you're married, be careful not to put undue pressure on someone who's single to enter a relationship that may not be God's will for them. And, and sometimes they experience this. My, my wife and I were both you know, older when we got married. We were out of college. We both had established lives. We were involved in ministry. And when you work in a college environment and all your friends are getting married, there's pressure. And probably more pressure on her than me. But we purposely made decisions in our dating to not date on campus because we wanted to avoid that pressure. And so when, when we were dating, it was always off campus because we were older and we didn't want to. So how's it going? Look, I don't need your input. In fact, the first time we dated on campus was at the end of the year. They had a multiple things going and, and there was no parking on the campus. And I had a reserved parking spot right in front of the dorm because I was the resident assistant, I was the, hall, the dorm supervisor, and so I had a reserved spot. And so we parked there because there was nothing else open. I didn't want to park there because it was right in front of the dorm that I was the supervisor of. And I, my instincts were right. When I, we went to a play and when I brought her back, one of my hall leaders, one of the guys who worked for me, had gotten all the guys in the dorm to come to the front windows and 300 guys were yelling out the, door, the windows and cheering for us. And I said, that's why we dated off campus. <laughs> but we don't need to put on pressure that isn't God's pressure. You can pray, but don't pry. And encourage others to find their identity and security in Jesus Christ. Because if you're not secure in Christ before you're married, you're not going to be secure in your marriage. Because one of the first things I tell couples in premarital counseling is you have two sinners real, living really close together. <laughs> And Christians can handle their sin in a way that will honor God, but it's not without challenges. So understanding we need to encourage others to have that relationship with Christ. Because as we are focused on Christ, that strengthens our marriage. And the third thing that we see in this passage then is that God expects the participants in marriage to manifest their submission to Christ. Now, if what we've read in verse 21 and 22, I've put it at the very end. Because I want you to see the spirit of what is being done here. Remember the context. The call is to walk in wisdom by being filled with the spirit, which will be evidenced in our actions and attitudes. And one of the aspects of being spirit-controlled is submitting to one another in the fear of God. And so when the Bible speaks of submission and love, this isn't accidental. It's not some cultural concept that, that Paul just inserted. This is God's original design. And when it speaks of mutual submission, that doesn't mean that both parties submit in the same way. But it does mean that both of them are under the authority of God and have to live for the glory of God. That a man who won't place himself under authority, whether it be joining a church, 
and being accountable to others, whether it be in the workplace, well, they're not going to work for anybody, they're just going to be on their own because they don't want to be accountable, uh, or other areas, it's probably somebody who's going to be very difficult to live with. And sometimes they're hiding deeper problems. Now, not always, and I know there are exceptions, but I've seen it in ministry. And some girls are attracted to a guy because he has this rebel streak. Realize that attitude is not based in Christ-likeness. It's an evidence of selfishness and sin, and you marry somebody like that, and it's going to create problems. Because that rebel streak is going to show up because they're selfish. The roles that are assigned, though, are not arbitrary or reversible. And instead, they reflect the distinctive roles of Christ and his church. That's the picture. So submission does not imply inferiority, but it's rather speaking of structure. Now, sin has ruined the harmony of marriage, but it doesn't create the roles. And that's why as we come to a passage like this, we have to set aside our priorities, our agendas, our wishes, and understand what God's Word says because submission really is setting aside my agenda, my priorities, and benefit for the benefit of somebody else. And biblical headship is a divine calling of husbands to take primary leadership for Christ-like servant leadership and then to protect and to provide and to lead in a way that will bring honor to the Lord. And so what we see, first of all, is that a man, by virtue of his manhood, is called to love and lead for God. In verse 23 of of this passage, it it says that the husband is the head of the wife. It's speaking of a structure. It's speaking of, of responsibility and leadership. That God has designed that that husbands take tender, loving servant leadership and accept the responsibility that we have for moral and spiritual direction. Now understand, sin has twisted that. And and the design that God has for humble, loving headship has turned into hostile domination in some men and passive, lazy indifference in others. And the truth is you see both of those in Adam. When they sinned, Adam was listening when he was supposed to be leading. When the Lord comes and says, what have you done? He comes, the Lord comes to Adam first. And, he, and when he judges Adam and Eve, he says to Adam first, because you have hearkened, you've listened to the voice of your wife. What was the point? Adam was supposed to be taking the leadership then. He became passive. He became indifferent. But when the judgment came, that's when Adam stepped forward. And what you see is the other side, a hostile domination. He, in essence, said, well, if anybody's going to die here, it ought to be her. The woman you gave me. No, that's the time he should have manned up and said, I was wrong. And so understanding that that God's purpose has been twisted by, by sin, we are called to love our lives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. You know, that is really hard. Because if if I am, as a husband, following the instruction of God, I have to love my wife like Christ loves the church, and I fail in that. And part of submission is allowing God to work in our lives. What we see, though, is that, that this would be a sacrificial love. That's verse 25. Gave himself for her. This, this is not a feeling-based 
emotion. That's the, the Greek word that's used here is the word agape. It's that deep-seated giving of oneself. There are multiple Greek words for love. There's the friendship, the phileo, it's, you know, the Philadelphia city of brotherly, really shove, but it's supposed to be love. That, that's one word. There's eros, that's that sexual desire. There's, there's agape. That's what's used here. It's a selfless love. You know, sometimes in, in counseling, somebody will say, well, you know, I, I don't love my wife anymore. Well, then that's disobedient. Well, you don't understand. I don't have these feelings. Like, it doesn't matter. You're till, it's a command. Well, I, I don't have that feeling. Say, well, the Bible says love your neighbor. And she's your closest neighbor. And so you need, so well, I don't, say, well, the Bible says love your enemy. <laughs> There's no out. <laughs> and so I have to say, how do I please God? How do I honor the Lord in this? It, it's, it's a sacrificial love, which is the opposite of a selfish love. So husbands, do we sacrifice our time, our plans, our convenience, our comfort? And it's the opposite of that selfishness. And understand, we live in a culture where, where too often we see that hostile domination. Let me say, oppression is the opposite of God's design for marriage. And when one spouse pursues their own self-interest by seeking to control or dominate another through a pattern of coercive control or punishing behavior, they are behaving sinfully. Then that damages the picture that God intends for marriage. There is no excuse for such behavior. It is sin. It flows out of a sinful heart. Abuse, oppression is contrary to God's design. And understand, God always signs with the oppressed. He will side with the one who's being oppressed. And so you're setting yourself up against God. It's contradictory to the heart of Christ who said that he is meek. He is lowly. He's gentle. This, this love is not a self-seeking love. It's a self-sacrificing love. The second thing we see, though, is a sanctifying love. That he might, verse 26, that he might sanctify and cleanse her. Men, do you realize that as husbands, our goal needs to be to see our wife grow in godliness? Is she more holy because of your leadership in the home? Our marriages are stewardships. You know, Christ got a bride that came with spots and wrinkles. And he is changing us to be conformed to the image of himself compassionately working to make us more holy you know that's that's convicting if i ask myself is my wife more holy because she married me or would she be more holy if she hadn't married me my responsibility has to be that she would be growing in christlikeness and the third thing we see is this is a secure love that he might present her to himself a glorious church. As I've already mentioned, Christ knows our background. He knows our baggage. He knows our problems in the past, in the present, and what's going to happen in the future. And we are accepted in the beloved. And so there's a security. And that's how we're to love. Nobody hates his own flesh. The words nourish and cherish speak of gentleness, not harshness. If you are characterized by harshness, a critical spirit, a demanding or judgmental attitude, that's not Christ-like. Are we sensitive? 
You know, we, those are not responses that bring security. We need to foster that because we have a responsibility. Billy Sunday made the comment, try praising your wife, even if it frightens her at first. We ought to be known for our love. But we also see in verse, the second part is, a woman by virtue of her womanhood is called to respect and help for God. And again, sin twists willing submission of a woman into a manipulative servitude in some and a brazen insubordination in others. Now, the verb submit is actually not in the Greek text in verse 22. So when we read wives submit to your own husbands, it's taking that verb from verse 21. It's carrying over. But there's a similar passage in Colossians 3 where it is restated. It says, wives, submit to your husbands. And the Greek verb there is in the present middle voice. You say, so what? Well, that's important because the active voice means you are doing something. The passive voice means something is done to you. The middle voice in the Greek means something is that you are doing something to yourself. So what it is saying here is that as the woman is making that choice to submit, it's not forced upon her. It's not something that she does to somebody else or that is done to her. It is her choice, and it's done as a decision, an act of obedience to the Lord, because that's what it says, as to the Lord. And so it's her decision to follow the leadership of her husband and understand that, that we have different roles in various aspects of ministry. And we may share our perspective, but ultimately somebody has to make the decision. And a wise husband's going to listen to his wife because she's her, his helper. And, and she sees things that we miss as men. My wife picks up things that, man, they just go right over my head. And I I learned long ago, if I don't listen, it's to my own detriment. Well, submission is an active response of allowing her husband to love and lead for God's glory. Say, well, what if he won't do it? I've told more than one lady to, you know, that submission is ducking so that God can slap your husband. And there's an element of that that's true. Get out of the way and let God deal with him. There's an order in, of submission in the Trinity. Christ submitted to the will of the Father. So it does, it's, it's speaking of respect, not inferiority. And again, that's where our culture just grates on this. It's not saying one is less than the other because Jesus Christ submitted to the will of the Father. In fact, it says in, in 1 Corinthians eleven three, 3, the head of Christ is God. Unless we try to excuse this as some idea that Paul came up with or out of date, it says in verse 22b, as to the Lord, that submission really is a spiritual matter. And that as we understand the importance of that, that now men, does your leadership encourage trust? Do you inspire because you are sacrificial, selfless, sanctifying, and secure in your love? Ladies, does your attitude one that, that encourages that in your husband? Or do we look at Scripture for our direction rather than our society? Now this, this is a tough passage, as I said, to preach because I felt like the Lord's slapping me <laughs> as I'm preparing. But our goal has to be, Lord, how can I please you? So I would ask, as we would apply this, does your attitude reflect a growing relationship with Christ? Do we get our instruction from Him rather than our society? 
a proper awareness of God's pattern, of His picture, of His plan in marriage, it doesn't diminish marriage. It actually raises it to the realm of almost an imaginable loftiness. That marriage was conceived in heaven. This was God's idea from the beginning to be a picture of the relationship that you and I have with Jesus Christ today as the church. We are members of his body and of his flesh and of his bone. That's what verse 30 says in this passage. Is the relationship of Christ and his church reflected in our relationship with our spouse? Say, well, you don't know my husband. You don't know my wife. David Harvey in his book, When Sinners Say I Do, said, what we believe about God determines the quality of our marriage. God knows your spouse. See, marriage wasn't just invented by God. It belongs to God. And He has a purpose. So it really is a stewardship. And our goal must be to be faithful, to seek to glorify God so that He will be honored in our marriages. Well, I don't think I can do that. God's power operates best in the realm of our weakness. When I am weak, then I am strong. Men, if you are angry, coercive, controlling, oppressive, you're not like Christ. And it's important that we understand that. You know, no amount of violence is ever acceptable in a marriage. And and wives, you do not honor your husband by covering his wickedness when you need to help him toward God. Don't value your marriage more than his repentance and holiness because that kind of sinful behavior thrives in silence. And that's the case in our culture. And while wives and husbands are the first relationship instituted by God, it's not the only authority. There's other authority, the church, the government. But you know, even with a marriage that's made in heaven, the maintenance takes place here on earth. And we've got two sinners living really close together. But this is why we have to pray, Lord, give us homes where Christ is Lord and Master. Because if our faith doesn't work at home, it doesn't work. So do you find your identity in Christ? Do we encourage others to Christ? And that would be the other point of application that I would make for us, that we would encourage one another to to develop that concern for Christ. Do you this morning find your identity in Him? Do you encourage other people? Oh, you need to be married. No, maybe they need to be focused on Christ. Because God's intention is that we would represent Christ and his church and find security in him that we would love him most of all how is this being played out in your life this morning there's lots of specifics we could talk about but I've tried to give you the spirit of this passage but if you're here without Christ today you can be part of his bride the church by trusting Christ as a personal savior it's not by membership it's not by baptism It's by belief in Christ alone. Let's pray together.